I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. And today I'm talking to my colleague Jeremy Harding, who has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on Morocco's secret prisons. It's a review of Tazmamert, 18 years in Morocco's secret prison by Aziz Bin Bin, translated by Lulu Norman, which Jeremy describes as an intimate memoir that nonetheless forces us beyond the prison gates to consider a century of turmoil in Morocco. Jeremy Harding is a contributing editor at the LRB. His books include Small Wars, Small Mercies, Journeys in Africa's Disputed Nations, and Border Vigils, Keeping Migrants Out of the Rich World. Hello, Jeremy, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. Good to talk to you. I was going to say that we should begin with the author of the book, as he's been been, and why he spent 18 years imprisoned in that truly horrific place for his alleged part in a coup attempt in 1970. But to begin to try to make sense of that, we probably need to go back earlier in the reign of King Hassan II of Morocco to an earlier alleged coup attempt in 1963, which is where you begin your piece. Yeah, that's right. The moment that uh, Hassan came to power uh, after his father's death in uh, in 61 and was crowned King of Morocco, the kingdom was, was facing two ways in some sense. There was a, a strong wish to to kind of retain contacts with with France and increasingly with uh, with the United States which had been not cemented exactly but but forged early on um, during the 1940s and uh, even before the Second World War ended but at the same time there was this interest in in liberation independence uh, the end of colonial rule and King Hassan's father to some extent to a great extent embodied in Morocco this wish to decolonize. He had fought his way, as it were, through through the, the French protectorate, always objecting to it, never never happy in any way at all with, with the colonial situation, to to the extent that he was he was actually sent into exile by the French with his son um, and the rest of the family, and returned at the point in the nineteen fifties when holding on to Morocco was really no longer tenable for the French. And having negotiated his return, they gave up the protectorate and handed Morocco independence. And, Mor- and Morocco at that time, like many, many countries who were just emerging from colonial rule, felt a good deal of solidarity with other countries in the same situation, including Algeria, actually. And many Moroccans were militantly involved in the anti-colonial struggle and in Hassan's eyes, promiscuously involved in the sense that they were internationalists and weren't merely loyal to the idea of the the new Moroccan post-independence arrangement. And early on in in Hassan's tenure as king, he started to move against anti-colonial elements who were looking at a, a more internationalist solution to 
the end of imperialism than he'd envisaged. And did he did he feel that that threatened his his rule? Why why was he opposed to them? What was what was the threat that they seemed to present to him? I think I think as time went on, he felt that uh, that he was probably better off as a figurehead who was supported by the West. President and Mrs. Kennedy arrive at Washington's Union Station for a reception rare in these days of arrivals by jet. They are here to welcome a royal visitor. King Hussein II of Morocco arrives from a New York welcome. In greeting the 34-year-old monarch, Mr. Kennedy recalls that Morocco was the first nation to recognize the United States in the difficult days of the revolution. Now begin two days of talks between the heads of state. Morocco gets no financial grants from the United States, but receives assistance in other ways. Many of the militants who were still left around after the dust had settled and Morocco had become independent were not at all disposed to, to buying, the, buying into the, the Western model of, of post-colonialism. And so, as you were saying in your, in your original question, it became a, a matter of trying to, to kind of cleanse Morocco of, it, of, its, of its radical anti-colonialist elements now that, now that independence had been achieved. And it wasn't, it wasn't simply the case for Hassan, actually. It had been the case for his father, even his father, this great stalwart of independence, having returned, having been crowned, having now become the king of a, uh, an independent North African state, even he felt obliged to move against anti-colonial elements who felt that the, the monarchy was not quite what they envisaged as a post-colonial arrangement. And so you had this tremendous tension growing at the time between the new post-colonial establishment in the form of the monarchy and a number of, a great many radicals who didn't actually accept the new status quo. They felt that independence had been left unfinished. It was just a, a project that had to be pushed a little bit further. And this was why uh, in, in 1963, the king and his entourage, his security entourage, sort of concocted a plot on the basis of, you know, one or two good bits of evidence, but it was, in the end, conceived to, to damn a whole range of people, not just radicals who'd been brought up, as it were, on, on the, in, in, in the tradition of armed liberation, but also constitutional radicals who wanted a peaceful settlement in which the new Moroccan monarchy would give way and become a proper democratic constitutional monarchy. And... The plot that was uncovered, I use sort of scare quotes around that word in the 60s, led to the arrest of hundreds of people. And it was the first really significant security clampdown under the young king's regime and really set the tone, I think, for, for most of his reign. It would, it would be a case of arrest, repression, suspicion, rounding up unbiddable opponents and buying off those who could be bought off, which in turn split the opponents between radicals and, and biddables, in a sense, with a monarchy, in my view, successfully presiding over the whole, the whole lot. And in the end, come the late 1960s, early 70s, the king is firmly in the seat. And But this 
obviously isn't an argument against decolonization, is it? The, I, did it? You can imagine a European conservative of a certain stripe looking at this and saying, look at the terrible repression in Morocco. It would have been so much better if the French had never left. But actually, that's what Hassan was doing, was continuing techniques of repression, of, of government through oppression that the French had established. Yes, and yes, I, th I agree with that. And I guess as well that the, the monarchy was... Um, a kind of neo-colonial formation in, in as much as it kept very solid links with French security priorities and with, you know, French economic interests in, in the region. Uh, I mean, the French were somewhat on the back foot, not only after the loss of Indochina in the 1950s, but at the end of the Algerian war, an undeclared war, by the way, uh, on the part of the French, um, which left them wondering, well, where are our allies? How do we retain an economic and prestige presence in the Maghreb. And Hassan was the, was, was the answer for France and kept very, very close contact um, throughout that period. One of the key players in Hassan's repression was, was this um, guy who's sort of, well, there are many villains in your piece, but one of the most striking villains of the piece, um, General Mohammed Ufkir, who had also been sort of, a, Hassan was his protege, but then he became... Hassan's aide de camp once he came to the throne. Could you tell us a bit about him? Yes, Ufkir is a, is, is, is a sort of central peg in the story, not simply because I want to tell it that way, but, but because the intrigue that, that Hassan's regime led to and the cloak and dagger stuff and the torment as well, I should say, of people who'd been detained is very much a, a classic narrative of some kind with figures, with characters, and Ufkir is, is one such, and he's central because um, he emerged as a very brilliant soldier fighting for the French in Europe, in Italy, actually, during the Second World War, and then in Indochina, and went on, on returning to Morocco, to become a key figure in the formation of the independent army. The, what I mean by that is the, the Moroccan army created after the French had left, and he rose rapidly through the security ranks, and he was a key consigliere, really, for the palace. Um, nobody could move without consulting Lufkir. Nobody was sure whether they were not about to be stabbed in the back by a rival unless Lufkir had got, got their back covered. He was that kind of figure. And um, he was also an enthusiast in the interrogation chamber, and he was a pretty good soldier when it came to repressing movements that were still, as it were, restive in the post-colonial period. And I've, I've got one particular in mind is uh, arising in the north of Morocco, the area called the Rif, while Hassan was still crown prince, uh, which required a lot, of, um, a lot of military force on the part of the Moroccan army to subdue. But Ufkir was the was the main figure in running that campaign and bringing it to a, a successful and rather horrible conclusion. Yeah, so Ufkir remains a, he remains a figure right through until the early 70s. And he was definitely or probably involved in the, the disappearance of, of Ben Barker in Paris, right, in the 1965. The figurehead of, of dissidents and Republican feeling was Ben Barker. And Ben Barker was an intellectual. Hassan did not like intellectuals. He was also someone who'd been forced into exile, both by Hassan's father. Ben Barker suspected that he would be 
cleaned up when, when Mohammed Sank was trying to get rid of the restive anti-colonial elements. But when Mohammed Sank died and Hassan II was crowned, he came back to Morocco and thought that there was uh, a possibility of, of negotiating a, an agreeable con constitution for all parties concerned. He, he was then the victim of, of an assassination attempt, which failed, and he got out of the country, and he became a peripatetic exile based in Cairo. And he was an, he was an internationalist, wasn't he? Uh, he, was a, he was a radical internationalist, and he was proselytising, you know, for, for Third World Revolution, to put it simply. And in the mid-60s, he was about to attend a major conference in Havana, in fact, to probably to preside at it, of liberation movements around the world. Um, he was transiting through Paris, and he was, uh, he was murdered. And to get back to Ufkir, your original point of interest, there were many theories about Ben Barker's disappearance, but it was the French courts in the end who condemned Ufkir for the murder. In absentia, of course, he wasn't there, and to life imprisonment. But that also was a way of pointing a finger at the king and saying, look, whoever was colluding in this, the, the main drive seems to come from the palace. And Ufkir has been, once again, your right-hand man in this. I mean, there was a speculation about CIA involvement and so on in that as well, wasn't there? Is, is there but maybe then that's just evidence of what you're talking about in Morocco as a, or as a, the monarchies keeping him with the United States that you talked about earlier. But they, but they kept him with Moscow as well, weren't they? They weren't, I mean, so they, they were, what was Morocco's position in the Cold War, that they weren't? It certainly got weapon, weaponry from Moscow and, and had, you know, fairly cordial diplomatic relations with Moscow. But I, I mean, I think the king knew which side his bread was buttered on and um, in the end found it more interesting to, to, to stick with the Western powers during the Cold War. The West was a kind of source of, a better source of wealth. There was more promise uh, for the king uh, to line his own pockets and to kind of hope to bring up the Moroccan economy. And, I mean, there was great evidence of that in the early 70s when Pan Am was about to buy an old military barracks that belonged to the French and build a luxury hotel. Well, that was just the kind of thing that, that Hassan was looking, looking for from the West. Unfortunately, this really angered people in the army when they, when they discovered that, it, in fact, most of the money from the, the, the sale would consist of, a, or a large sum, would consist of a bung to King Hassan and, and his entourage. And that was the moment at which a lot of ill feeling that had already been gathering in the army about having to repress elements that it didn't necessarily want to repress or, or had a more ambivalent relation to than, than Hassan did, that anger began to, to build into, into a plot to overturn the king. And that plot took place in 1971, and it was entirely done by the military. And they marched on his summer palace in Skirat on the coast, and it was a debat. The revolt began on Saturday afternoon, just as a party to celebrate the king's 42nd birthday was in full swing at his summer palace of Skirat. Just after lunch, a convoy of about 40 lorries arrived, carrying about 800 soldiers, mostly army cadets. 
They fought their way into the palace using rockets and machine guns, rounded up the guests, government ministers and ambassadors and forced them to lie on the ground. Apparently the ringleaders had hoped that the king would have been killed in this initial shooting, for according to the official story, the army cadets had been tricked into the attack. They'd been told that the king's life was in danger and that they, in fact, were going to rescue him. The coup failed. The officers, the key officers were, were killed and Ufkir and the king were left momentarily in charge of the situation again. On Saturday, the king handed over full military and civil powers to his minister of the interior, General Ufkir, until the situation is brought back to normal. Now the question being asked here is whether the king will ever get those powers back for himself again and just how long it'll be before Morocco's dissident left-wingers stage another coup. And one of the people who was arrested was Aziz Bin Bin. Bin Bin was a junior officer at this cadet training centre from which the coup was launched in 71, the summer of 71. And he had no notion along with the cadets and most of the junior officers, what it was that he was doing when he was ordered on regular exercises. They set off one morning and uh, they weren't entirely sure what the operations were going to involve. But at some point in their journey, they were brought to a halt and told by their senior officers that they were to march on the king's palace in Skirat and that they were to kind of obey instructions thereafter. And they opened fire the cadets in any case, and the situation unfolded in an entirely unsatisfactory way for the coup plotters, um, and an entirely unsatisfactory way for, for the young trainees who were looking after the young officers who were looking after the cadets, and Bean Bean was one of these. He'd had a successful career to that date as a, as a soldier, and um, he was horrified by what happened. He claims not to have fired a single shot, he managed to run away, get somebody's car and drive to a barracks where he explained what had happened and handed himself over. And um, he was one of many plotters, those who weren't actually killed in the shootout at the palace, who were condemned to jail of varying, varying lengths of time. Bean Bean was looking at 10 years. Some people were looking at longer, some a year. And um, before they knew it, they were transported to a secret detention centre which had been hastily constructed in Tasmamert on the edge of the desert and the Atlas Mountains. And um, after, the, after the Skirat coup had, been, uh, had, had, had finished and people were in jail or they were dead and the cadets were pardoned, actually, most of them who were left alive, there was another coup um, by the Air Force um, from a, a, an airbase in Kenitra, and um, that too failed to dislodge the king. The rebel Air Force officers took off um, in US fighter jets and attempted to bring down the king's 727, his private plane, as it was returning from France with um, a party of friends and minders and helpers, uh, but it didn't work. It was a botched coup, and the pilots were executed or sent down, and they too found themselves in the jail at Kenitra. And then suddenly in 1973, within about eight months of the coup, if I remember right, of the second coup, they were all fetched out in the middle of the night, 
stuck on lorries and carted off to, um, to a mysterious destination from the airport at Kanitra. And there they were in this hastily built dungeon to accommodate some 70 people, a mixture of Air Force officers and the army. And that, I was going to say second coup, but it's far more than second, but the, the last of those. But Uvkir was involved in it, so something had happened to make him switch sides and decide that... Yeah, you have the first coup in which Uvkir is absolutely crucial in its failure, and then you have this period in which Uvkir is clearly meditating on the on the nature of the monarchy, the nature of the army, uh, presumably listening quite closely to generals, senior generals, who are who are not happy with the way things are going. There's a lot of repression in Morocco, there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of abuse by the monarchy helping itself to this, that and the other. And Ufkir seems to turn, and to turn very drastically against the king, and presumably against the whole setup. So, by the time that the second coup is actually suppressed, and it happens rapidly, within the space of a few hours. It transpires that Ufkir was the key organiser, or one of them, of the pilot's coup, and that he'd been complicit in it and, and approved it. But again, within, within hours of the coup, he'd been murdered. Uh, he was said to have committed suicide, but he was clearly taken out by the king's security. The king is now supported by few experienced officers and will be counting his friends very carefully. But with General Ufkir dead, the King Hassan believes he can now mop up his followers. Most Moroccans seem neither concerned nor affected over the dispute between the military and civilian wings of the government. If anything, the King's support in the country has been increased with the belief he survived through divine protection. But the people of Morocco have had little chance of public or political expression. One leading party, the Istiklal Nationalist Movement, say the king must give the people a say in running the country after his undemocratic policies of the past nine years. The king's answer came in a broadcast to the nation. All high positions are open to the people, he said, but anyone who tries to seize power will be the first victim of his own actions. And meanwhile, Bin Bin and the others were taken, as you said, to, to Tasmanet, newly built. And it said to be a secret prison, and it was to the extent that nobody knew about it, other than the people who, who'd built it and worked there. Yeah, as far as we can tell, not many people know about it. Perhaps families know a little bit, but obviously they have no interest in, in talking about it because the repercussions would be too great, potentially for inmates who they'd hope would be released when their jail terms ended. But it turned out that in Tasmanet, the jail terms meant absolutely nothing. You know, whether you've been sent down for three years, ten years, or life, the longer this, uh, um, this dungeon kind of rolled on, the clearer it became that uh, people were there until they died. That was the project. Um, and Bin Bin's story, um, which, which is interestingly not a political story, it's a story... I don't think Bin Bin is terribly interested in, in the politics of the situation. I don't think he was interested in overthrowing the king during the first coup... He was somebody who just wanted to be a soldier, you know. His, his account of, of, of Tasmamert is not full of political recrimination or analysis. It's simply a story of what happened to the people who were put in that place and what happened to him. And uh, it, 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 it was a long, long time and, uh, 
simply because Hassan never meant to release people at all, the only way that you ended your sentence uh, was by dying, basically. And that's the story Bin Bin tells. He tells the story of his survival, the, the death of his friends and the su survival of a few others, and how they managed it, which was basically, I think, a, an intellectual or what Bin Bin would call a spiritual feat of just managing the days um, and trying not to, to give in to, to utter despair. You just had to remain in a state of kind of moderate despair and wonder when something might, might come your way. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. But it, it did close in the end, before they all died, in 1991, after 18 years. Was that because the end of the Cold War? or what, what? Yes, it was. It had a lot to do with the end of the Cold War and the fact that the State Department was now able to, to turn its attention to its, um, its Cold War allies who were absolutely insouciant about the abuses that they were committing in the name of um, Western freedoms. Because I think that uh, this was Bush's new world order, wasn't it? It was uh, the demise of the Soviet Union and freedom for everybody, including people who'd been terribly badly treated by our staunchest allies. That was the thinking. So with the, um, the way that Bush is where turned on his former ally, Saddam Hussein, would that have been something that Hassan would have seen and been disturbed by? I mean, the thing about Saddam was that Hassan had n never really been keen on any kind of Bartism, any even residual Bartism, he did, and and there was not much love lost between between Morocco and and, and Iraq at the time, um, and in fact during the invasion to oust Saddam from Kuwait, Morocco sent troops for for the um, for the coalition, but I mean there was reason to feel on Hassan's part pressure really, and economic pressure at that, you know, you have to do this. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to be so favorably disposed to the economic relations we enjoyed with you during the Cold War. You have to do that for the same reason. And I think Hassan saw this coming on the eve of a state visit he was about to make to, to Washington. And he released a batch of prisoners, and including everybody in Tasmamelt. But this wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been some way of getting news around that the facility actually existed. And there were several people who were, who were involved in that. One of them was called Christine Dorsafati. She was um, a French teacher, a lycée teacher, who'd been an activist in Morocco at the same time and eventually been thrown out of the country. Her husband, about whom I write quite a lot in this piece, Abraham Safati, was put in jail in the 70s, shortly after everybody was sent to Tatmamet. Not the same jail, however. And once she was thrown out, she began to raise the word and raise awareness in France, the rest of Europe, and to some extent when she could in the US, about what was happening in Morocco. And she obviously had wind of Tasmamet at some point or other. There was also an Air Force staffer in Tasmamet who was married to a teacher in, I think, Nebraska. 
and a teacher in Nebraska, an American, US citizen, got an inkling of what was going on and kept up a kind of barrage of questions uh, with the State Department. And by the time that um, the Cold War was, was over, there was a genuine will to kind of turn around this dungeon culture in Morocco on the part of the State Department um, and probably on the part of the White House too. And so there was pressure, definitely pressure. And Hassan, who was an extremely astute reader of these things, wanted to kind of, I think, release and make a gesture by releasing these people actually before these detainees in a dreadful state, before he went to Washington for his meeting with Bush. Although, as it happened, Bush, Bush raised it all the same. And I think Hassan's people, his advisors, were, were very shocked by that. They regarded that as a betrayal on Bush's part. After all, Morocco had put out in the Gulf War. And Bin Bin wasn't a political prisoner. He wasn't politically minded. Um, but Safati very much was. Yes, Safati was definitely a political prisoner. And there was another interesting oddity about Safati, which was that he was one of the very few Moroccans who favoured independence for Western Sahara, Spain's, Spain's former colony. And at the time of his arrest, it was, still being, it was still run by the Spanish, but it was due for decolonization. And both the palace and the major political parties, and you could add to that the newspapers and most of Hassan's citizens, did not believe that Spanish Sahara on independence should pass to the indigenous people of the territory like most African, most African colonies, which, when decolonized, are given to the people around whom the Europeans originally delineated boundaries. Instead, the king, the papers, the parties, and most Moroccans felt that Morocco had a right, a historical right, to take over Western Sahara from the Spanish when the moment came. And this was this was a right enshrined as a kind of God-given right, really. And anybody who disagreed would find themselves on the wrong end of Hassan's wrath. And Safati, at that time, argued for the independence of the territory at the moment when the Spanish gave it up, which they did in the following year. That, that was because of the death of Franco and the end of fascism in Spain. Yes, it, yes, it was. I mean, you, you have to see Western Sahara, I think, as as nearly achieving independence at the point at which the Iberian, Iberian fascism comes to an end. You've got the coup, the military coup in, in Lisbon in 1974, which overthrows the, the fascist regime in Portugal. And then you have the death of Franco in 75, and it's the end of fascism in Spain. So it's a moment, another massive moment of decolonization in Africa that Angola and Mozambique and all the, the last European possessions. Exactly. Guinea-Bissau, Angola, Mozambique are handed over by the new uh, military regime, left-wing military regime in, in, in Lisbon. They're decolonized. And this was the expectation of the population of Western Sahara, the Sahrawis. They fully expected and were in negotiations with Madrid for a, a proper handover a proper formal European to African handover on the part of Madrid to their liberation movement called the Polisario Front, just in just the same way as the Portuguese had handed over Mozambique to Frelimo and Angola to the MPLA. But that didn't happen because 
Morocco invaded? or It didn't happen because Hassan wouldn't wear it and he put an end to it with a show of force. It also didn't happen because in Madrid itself there was disarray. Franco wasn't dead yet, but uh, there was no sort of proper confidence about how to decolonize and if it came to a show of force, how to honor its right, honor its obligation, I'm sorry, to hand over to the the people of the territory. And Hassan could see that this was the case and put Madrid to the test with this spectacular kind of Anschluss, really. It was a green march, he called it, of 350,000 Moroccans who were bussed down to the border and chaperoned across it with the help of the Moroccan army and marched into territory of Western Sahara saying, this is ours. This is where the road from Morocco ends, and the 30,000 Spanish troops and legionnaires who guard the 100,000 square miles of wilderness beyond are confidently expected to join the ranks of the few soldiers in history who have laid down their arms and welcomed an invader. They withdrew from the Moroccan border itself several days ago, leaving, as far as is known, an open road to the gates of the Spanish Saharan capital, El Ayun. Meanwhile, the number of Moroccans gathering in the nearby camp at Tafaya has now passed the quarter of a million mark, all of them geared up to a high pitch of enthusiasm and readiness. And Madrid ordered its troops, Spanish colonial troops, not to open fire on this massive demonstration. What would have happened? It would have been a, a disaster. And it was a kind of a fait accompli, really. And within moments, Madrid had caved in and said, OK, we're going to sign a separate deal. We're going to scrap this kind of much-honoured arrangement in, in, in decolonization, where it's handed over to the inhabitants of a territory. And we're going to produce these agreements with Rabat, Morocco, and with Mauritania. And we're going to split the territory in two and put it into their administrative charge. Morocco gets the northern part of Western Sahara. Mauritania gets the south. Polisario, obviously, the liberation movement, was incensed. Saharis living in... Uh, in Western Sahara and some in, in southern Morocco as well were very, very dubious about it. And when Polisario put up resistance, there was a military showdown and uh, the net result was that thousands of Sahrawis and the Polisario themselves retreated across the border with Algeria, which is where they've been settled ever since. And Morocco has turned Western Sahara into a very successful settler colonial project with um phosphate phosphate mining is that right there's the yes phosphates are a big resource but fisheries too are a big resource and there's a tussle going on right now with the european union between morocco and the european union about the extent to which any fishing that that morocco carries out on in western saharan waters can be included in a forthcoming trade deal on fishing and was spain's willingness to allow Morocco to take Western Sahara or its unwillingness to stop them? Was that con cause connected to those two enclaves, as they're often referred to, but those two remaining Spanish colonial possessions in Africa, that Ceuta and Melilla, which are, as it were, within the geographical territory of Morocco, but are part of Spain? Was there any sense that Hassan said to Spain, you can keep those if you let us have Western Sahara, or was it not that sort of... I don't know the answer to that question. My view of... The Spanish capitulation has to do with primarily with disarray in Madrid. They're about to transit from decades of Francoism into a democracy that, that is 
not quite clearly emerged. They are completely preoccupied at that point with internal events, but also believe that they have to decolonize in a proper way, but they simply don't have the logistics or the energy or the focus of, of the political focus to counteract a, a major move of the part of the kind that Hassan made. The other thing is, you, you, you know, you have to, there were four enclaves actually in Morocco proper, of which Ceuta and Melilla are the only two remaining ones. But it's simply that there weren't major deliberations on, on decolonization by the UN that involved Ceuta and Melilla. But there were, there were major rulings on the decolonization of Western Sahara by the United Nations and the Organization of African Union, Unity. It was seen as a, as a discrete entity which had to be decolonized in the proper way. So I think that it's not so much that there was a distinction between the enclaves and, and Western Sahara, although clearly there was, uh, or whether Hassan could pressure Spain on, on Ceuta and Melilla, which were the only ones remaining by that time, the enclaves. It's more a case that Madrid just wasn't up to it and the international community had no position to take, except in theory, to say to Hassan, no, you can't do this. It was force majeure, simple as that. And in 1991, that the year that Tasmanmat closed, the Cold War's come to an end, there was also an agreement, right, to hold a referendum on the status of Western Sahara. But we're still waiting for that. Well, we're not. They are still waiting for that referendum to be held. The notion of the referendum has changed because, uh, I mean, the Americans and, and the UN were very, very active in trying to, to get this referendum off the ground. And it was originally agreed by both parties after the ceasefire that there should be a referendum on, on independence for Western Sahara or integration within Morocco. And it was a really complicated business to discover who was eligible to vote. This goes back to the 1950s, and I'll try and keep this really short. But when the, um, the remains of the restive Moroccan liberation movement were being mocked up, basically in the 1950s, with King Mohammed Sank's approval, but by the French and the Spanish, a lot of people who were living in Spanish Sahara fled across the border into Morocco. These were Sahrawis. And there was therefore come the time that a census had to be drawn up in the 1990s, a huge amount of difficulty in discovering who was eligible to vote. There were lots of people from the Sahrawi tribes who, who'd been living in, in southern Morocco since the end of the 50s and probably earlier. How you found out whether they were uh, within their rights to take part in a referendum was unbelievably complicated. And the great thing about this complexity, which the Polisario set about solving very helpfully by putting in their own censuses and, and uh, submitting them to the UN. The great thing about this complexity was that Hassan could make much of it and say, look, this is, this is odd, we don't accept this. What's this. What are these people in southern Morocco doing, suddenly eligible to vote? Whereas the UN was saying, well, actually, if they'd, if they'd been in, the, in Spanish Sahara for generations, they are probably eligible to vote. The Moroccan position was, no, they're not. The Moroccan position, moreover, was... Actually, the people that have been settling from Morocco in Western Sahara ever since 1975, when we started the settlement pro program, surely they too should be eligible to vote. And gradually, gradually, the whole notion of the referendum 
kind of ran into the ground. It ran into the sand. There was, um, there was nothing that the, the UN mission could do. And we're, we're in the position now where Morocco has the upper hand and it, the only referendum it will countenance is for some kind of regional autonomy of Western Sahara within Morocco or full integration. Well, there aren't many Sahrawis who want either, either, either of those. Thank you very much. First, thank you for your I thank Secretary Christopher and Secretary Baker for dropping everything at a moment's notice to make this trip to manifest uh, their respect for King Hassan and the friendship between the United States and Morocco. Among the throngs, the millions of his fellow citizens who came out to honor his passing today were leaders from every part of the world, from every political and religious background united in their justice to him. Because when we think of a survivor, we think about someone who is very clever, all right, but just, just enough to escape the slings and arrows that fortune places in our path. Just enough to survive. And His Majesty King Hassan did more than that. He showed it is possible to be commander of the faithful and a champion of tolerance and a bridge between faiths. He showed it is possible to represent continuity and stability and to build the society that is more and more democratic and open, open to competing ideas and other people. And then another moment of potential change came in 1999 when Hassan II died and Mohammed VI inherited his, his father's throne. And there was quite a lot of hope at the time. At least I remember reading articles in the New York Times about it, that this marked a great change in Morocco. It was the beginning of a new, more hopeful era. But that, that isn't quite how it turned out, is it? No. Um, I mean, it was a hopeful moment. It wasn't quite the case at that point that the Western Sahara referendum was completely stymied. And it looked very much as though the king, the new king, was, um, was, was in earnest um, about kind of creating democracy in Morocco. And there was a truth and reconciliation process, actually, one of many, in which crimes committed could be discussed and money could be set aside for, for victims and families of victims. And that all looked very promising in some way. But, you know, the thing... The thing about that process was that um, unlike all the other kind of truth and reconciliation processes, it hadn't been attended by a massive change. There was no structural change or overhaul as there had been in Eastern Europe, South Africa or Chile, places like that. Um, it, it was the same, the same firm running the show. And a lot of, a lot of plaintiffs, uh, a lot of people who came forward to, to speak at the commission ended up very disappointed by, by the result. And as time went on, the new monarch began to disappoint his subjects. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just, this is not just a Moroccan scenario. We're dealing with 
the massive disappointment that set in everywhere at the end of the Cold War. So much was expected. I mean, you think of Eastern Europe, um, the remains of the Soviet bloc. You think of Latin America and you think of multi-party in sub-Saharan Africa. There was a, a wave of, of hope for um, and almost a demand for the impossible that, that there would be democracy as, 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 as we knew and loved it. Um, but it simply wasn't deliverable. And I, I wouldn't single out Morocco as a, as a, as a special kind of um, failure. It was just one among many. And of course, it became, of course, people became bitter and disappointed. But the firm, as you describe it, the, the royal family, is astonishingly resilient, isn't it? I mean, they, he was, I'm not sure if it's the current king's grandfather, great-grandfather, who was, became king at independence yeah, from France. The grandfather. And that family is still ruling Morocco. Survived all those coup attempts, survived the end of the Cold War, the Arab Spring. I mean, they have shown remarkable resilience. Resilience is the word for it. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, Mohamed Sis, the, the, the current king, uh, was so astute about handling the, the Arab Spring and seeing it off. I mean, you know, he quickly produced, a, a drafted changes to the constitution and there was, you know, tremendous amounts of flannel at the beginning of the, in the preamble and it sounded marvellous. Um, but the constitution is still basically a constitution that enshrines the divine right of the monarch. Um, and whether, whether, whether everybody in, in Morocco is happy with that or not, I wouldn't like to say, but but it's it's part of the resilience of, of that dynasty uh, that it's hung on to stuff and you hung on to its position and um, there's no denying them that. Jeremy Harding, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Tom. Good to talk to you. You can read Jeremy Harding's piece on Morocco in the current issue of the LRB, along with Thomas Nagel on Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch and Barbara Newman on Nuns with Blue Teeth and Medieval Manuscripts. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.